comes from Matthew 14. Matthew 14, reading verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> Heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This must be John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests he commanded, and because of his oaths and his guests he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now just north of 30 years ago, on a Monday night football game, the Redskins were playing the Giants. <laughs> and during the game, uh, there was a, a quarterback uh, on Washington's side by the name of Joe Theismann. Now, Joe was middle to three-quarters of the way through his career, but he still had some years in front of him, and he was playing a really good game. And uh, he, he called for a, a flea flicker. How many of you know what a flea flicker is? Basically, the, the quarterback gets the ball, he tosses it to, to someone to run, running back typically, and as that back goes forward, he tosses the ball back to the quarterback in a kind of a sneak play so that the quarterback can now find somebody downfield and hit, hit his receiver. Well, Lawrence Taylor, one of the greatest linebackers to ever play the game. Is that okay? The there we go. One of the greatest. <laughs> Butkus. Um, and uh, Lawrence Taylor, and, and actually most of the defense read the option. They, they completely understood what was going on. And so they go back for Theismann to, to get a great sack. And they great, made an incredible sack. And then there's all this chaos on the field. And people actually thought at one point that LT was taunting because he was still there, and LT's yelling, no, get somebody over here, get somebody over here. And if you've seen it, if you haven't seen it, you can YouTube it, but prepare yourself because it's probably one of the worst injuries ever caught on camera in football. Uh, Lawrence Taylor's strength as he came down, his knee caught the lower leg of uh, Joe Theismann and snapped both bones completely in two. And at that moment, completely ended Joe Theismann's career in the NFL. Now there was no one intentionally meaning to do that that day. There was no thought of, of destroying another man's career. Both men were, were distraught afterwards because they knew what it meant and that everybody that plays in the NFL, almost everybody, not everybody, everybody, almost everybody that plays in the NFL spends their entire life knowing what they're going to be. They're great at it in, in uh, coming up through Pop Warner. They're awesome for their high school. They're incredible for their college. They get drafted in and they just know that this is their plan. And now Joe Theismann's plan doesn't exist anymore. And he has to figure out what he does when everything he's worked for simply no longer exists. 
This morning, we're looking at an interesting passage of Scripture. Andy and I were joking last week. I said, I guess I'll go ahead and take John the Baptist's head off for you since you don't want to do that sermon. And he says, what are you talking about? I had to preach on hell a couple of weeks ago. So it's a... We'll, we'll, we'll argue later over which one was harder. <laughs> but there's not a lot of great things going on in this story, which makes it somewhat difficult to, to, uh, to go into. But I wanted to break down because there are some confusing things that happen in this story and talk a little bit about one of the families involved here. And I want to really, really draw out a couple of the, the main players in this scene because they all have different ways of dealing with what happens when they think that their plan is threatened, when they think that what they thought should be happening wasn't going to happen anymore. To start that, we're actually going to go way back to when Jesus was born, and there was another Herod, and I want to talk about him, Herod the Great. Herod the Great had a massive kingdom that he ruled over. He was, uh, in that day, if you were a king, it didn't mean you didn't have anybody above you. You all reported back to Roman, back to Caesar, and your job was to make things go well for that kingdom and to keep everybody calm and to keep the taxes flowing to Caesar, no wars breaking out, let's just everybody just pay taxes and move forward, right? Well, Herod the Great at the time, if you recall, actually, uh, if you look at the history books, was considered uh, a kind of a mixed bag of a king, mixed bag of a leader. On one hand, uh, history records that he did a lot of great things. He built up a lot of infrastructure for, for the towns. Um, he got some taxes to come back to Rome to take care of citizens. He did things like that. But he was a raging narcissist with paranoia issues and, and really no thought of humanity other than his own. And so that's why in Matthew it records that Herod the Great uh, killed all the firstborn uh, Jews in his kingdom because he had heard that there was a baby born who people said would be king of the Jews. So rather than threaten his plan, he said, I'm going to you know, nip it in the bud and take care of it right there. That's the kind of person we have there. Now, why do I bring that up? Because Herod the Tetrarch in this story, that was his dad. So I want you to understand a little bit about where Herod the Tetrarch comes from. Now, when Herod the Great was uh, about to die, he had decided that his kingdom would be divided up. And he, would, he had it divided between, I think, two brothers, Herod and Philip, and uh, a sister. Now, oddly, the sister got half the kingdom. And then Herod and Philip each got a quarter because Herod the Great, number one, didn't trust them. And number two, was a little bit afraid that they might try and kill him before he died. This is a wonderful family. So Herod the Tetrarch goes and marries a woman because it's, it's politically it works out well for him to marry him. Philip, on the other hand, is told by, Her by his dad, Herod the Great, you are going to marry this woman Herodias. Herodias is, Herod, uh, is Philip's niece. So now he's been told you have to marry your niece. So Philip's married to his niece. Herod the, Great's married to this, or Herod the Tetrarch's married to this other person. Herod the Tetrarch goes and visits Philip and, and the niece, and he falls in love with her. He falls in love with his sister-in-law slash niece. Aren't you glad the kids stayed in the program today? <laughs> it just hit me. <laughs> and so they make a plan after they have an affair together, and they basically say, okay, I'm going to divorce this woman I married for political gain. I don't care what happens. Herodias feels like she got the shaft anyhow because Philip wasn't that great of a king. He got the lesser part of the kingdom and everything else. So she's trading up in uncles. And so now his sister-in-law niece is now his wife. 
And I, I, when I read this and I read the history of it, all I kept thinking was Jerry Springer may go, nope, too much for me. No way. <laughs> this, this would not be the end of my TV series. They, they think I'd lost that mind. So Herod brings his new bride, niece, whatever you want to call her, back to his kingdom. And that's where somebody who is trying really hard, Herod the Tetrarch, to build his world, and uh, his new bride, Herodias, is trying to, to trade up in the world, they come into encounter with a gentleman by the name of John the Baptist. Now, as you know, John knew from birth his life had a plan. It was prophesied before he was born that he would have an important ministry. His entire family knew his mission was to call people to repentance, to call people for the first time in 400 years to hear the voice of a prophet, and to call people to look forward beyond John to the Messiah, the promised one, the one that is to come. It's a, one of the greatest honors, might be the greatest honor a human-born person could ever have. And the, John the Baptist did that well. He, he put together a group of disciples, people he was teaching up. He baptized people in the name of God the Father. He, asked, he called them to repentance of their sins. He did all of the things that a prophet should do. And the entire time when people would say, we want to follow you, he'd say, well, if you want to follow me, keep going this way because I'm following the guy in front of me. I don't want you to be my disciple. I want you to be his disciple. John's entire life was going around saying, Behold the Lamb of God, a man who I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. That was his sole focus for his entire life. He was a special man chosen for a special mission, the forerunner to the Messiah, and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. John really is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said, Among them that are born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But you see, as a prophet, it's not just his duty to share good news about Jesus, but it's also to call out sin and breaking the law in God's leaders. We see that throughout the Old Testament when Nathan comes to King David and confronts him about sin. We see that when Elijah confronts Ahab and, and uh, um, Jezebel about their sin. We see Jonah call an entire country to repentance. God's prophets are there to call people back to him. And when you call people back to him, that must mean they were away from him. And the most direct way to go at that was to call out why they're away. Now, the, all of the Herods, Herod the Great, Herod the Tetrarch, they all followed Jewish law. They were what was known as an Edomite. And Edomites weren't Jewish, but they followed Jewish law. And in the case of this leadership, probably the primary reason they followed that law was to help keep order because they thought they didn't want any problems. And if you don't want any problems, you sort of go along with it. I don't want to get too far into modern-day politics, but you know, when somebody, sudden, someone suddenly becomes a Christian when they weren't a Christian five minutes ago, or sudden, someone suddenly becomes pro this cause or pro that cause when you can't find any history of that whatsoever, it's kind of that kind of game that they play with the Jewish nation. And really just trying to please them. They know that's their primary constituency, so it's like these are the guys that, that I am going to, uh, going to focus on. But it was their desire to live by that law. And it is against Jewish law to marry your brother's wife while your brother is still alive. It's in Leviticus. As someone just said, go figure. Yeah, that's shocking, right? So John publicly called out this marriage of sin in the eyes of God and against the law and basically told Herodias, you need to go back to your husband. She's like, I'm with my husband. No, you're not. 
Your husband's in the other kingdom. You need to go back. He didn't mince words about it. He said, now is the time for you to go back. And so here you've got these two people who consider themselves the most important people in the kingdom. And you have a guy whose entire life has been talking about somebody else, leading people to somebody else, foregoing all, you know, really earthly, uh, I don't even want to call it accoutrements or whatever, you know, wearing camel skin, uh, eating locusts, eating honey, really just living the pauper's life because he wanted his entire focus to be on Jesus. And you've got this guy calling you the leader out as someone who's doing something wrong. How does that make them feel? Now, I can tell you one time when I was, uh, years ago, uh, I was working somewhere, and uh, this is hard to believe, but I was getting pretty full of myself. You know, I was good at what I did. People gave me attaboys all the time and everything, and I just, I was the guy, you know. And uh, I came to my, my uh, desk one day, and my laptop was gone. And where my lap, and I had work to do, and where my laptop had been sitting, there was a yellow tag by the security guard. You did not leave your laptop secured, so we've taken it to the security office. You must bring this slip by and pick it up. And on top of that, you now have to take security training so that you learn how to lock up your laptop in the future. So are you kidding me? This minimum wage making security guard, probably grad, barely graduated high school, is going to tell me, and I wasn't, I was, this wasn't in my head, this was out loud in front of like 12 other people going to tell me what I'm doing. Nice. I want to compare his paycheck to my paycheck. And then the guy behind me, Louie, he, he, he walks behind me and he says, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. I said, shut up, Louie. It was not my finest moment. And I, I really, I mean, I joke about it, but I really was convicted afterwards, and I went, he, he was right, I was wrong. It didn't matter who I thought, what the hierarchy was. But it hurt me because it revealed to me what was going on in my heart and how I viewed people. Now, for those of you that are worried that was many years ago, um, I'm not saying I never struggled with that, but I have grown. Um, so Herod and Herodias are met with a guy. And what's their reaction? Who do you think you are? And so Herodias, she hated John the Baptist. And according to Matthew, Herod hates him, but Herod's afraid. He's not going to kill him because he's afraid of what John's followers might do. He's trying to keep the peace. But he's also afraid to let John go around and keep speaking out about his marriage because here's a guy who's undermining all of my plans. So Herod the Tetrarch figures it out. He says, I'm going to have John thrown in jail. At least it will shut him up. He doesn't have a legal reason to throw him in prison, but he doesn't need one. And so that's, that's what he does. And Andy covered all this in detail very well a few weeks ago. Uh, if you want, want to listen to it online, I was going to say, if you want to listen to it online, maybe share a link and have a quiz next week on the pictures and you can win or something, you know. Um, but uh, um, Andy covered it very well, where John has a momentary crisis of faith, where he says, send word to Jesus. I hear all these things he's doing. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? And if not... Should we wait? In other words, are you the one? If not, what am I doing here? Jesus answers and confirms that he's the one, but he qualifies it. Blessed is the one who doesn't fall on account of me. In other words, I am the one. You are in prison. I don't see 
I'm not saying whether you're coming out or not. I hope your crisis of faith doesn't shake you too far. What do you do when you think you know the right thing for God to do, and yet that's not the answer you receive? What do you do when you're working God's plan or what you believe is God's plan and something stalls it out and you don't hear God fixing it? Or you don't even hear God saying the door is closed, move another direction. You just don't hear God. What do you do when you hit that moment in life where there's this crisis of faith where you say, I think I was doing all of the right things for all of the right reasons. And if that were true, what am I doing here? That's the problem John faced. Jesus continues to do miracles. John is in prison. But where is our friend Herod? Let's read verse 6. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and it pleased Herod, so that, the promise, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So it's Herod's birthday. And remember, on your birthday, you're the king. You've got to, the whole town's got to celebrate. They've got to just be excited about your birthday. And so Herod invites other, uh, I think it's in Mark tells us, that he invites all of the important people in town. You've got the biggest military leaders have shown up there, heads of state. They've all come for this massive party. And they are drinking and eating, and they are getting drunk. And in the middle of all this, his stepdaughter, 12 years old, Antipas, Somebody calls her, I don't know if it's Herodias or who, and says, come dance for these guests and entertain them. Now again, tells you about this family. Who on earth would put a 12-year-old kid through that? But she comes out and she does her dance. And we're not told a lot about the dance. There's a lot of different people that speculate. I'm, I'm not going to do that here. But I'm going to tell you, Herod is pleased. And I think part of that comes from the fact that everybody loved the dance. And so now here's a guy who's really trying to build himself up, and he's gotten his stepdaughter to do a dance for him, which is unheard of. And it's a wonderful dance. And now they're really impressed. Boy, this Herod, he really is incredible. He's probably surpassing his dad and how powerful he is. And in the middle of it all, he gets so excited, and he's like, I know I'm really going to have bragging rights now, and I'm going to tell the girl in front of everybody, I swear to you, you can have anything you want, anything up to half my kingdom. Now, people think I can't believe he would have given away half his kingdom. Well, Rome owns the kingdom, so there's only so much he could have really given away. But it really sounds good in front of a group of people you're trying to impress. And he th in my mind, he's probably thinking, 12-year-old girl, I'm going to offer her anything she's want. She's going to want her own room. Maybe she's going to want the equivalent of a you know, first century iPhone. I don't know. But she's going to want something that I could probably give, and I'm going to look really good in front of this crowd of people. But remember, he married Herodias. She's ambitious. In fact, some ways more ambitious than he is. And so for the girl, the offer is overwhelming. So she goes to her mom, and she's like, Mom, I've just gotten an offer that's too good to be true. What should I ask for? And so he, she turns to her, and um, she says... Uh, when Herod came, said he prompted an oath. Prompted by this, her mother said, "Have him give me the head of John the Baptist right here on a platter." And I can't imagine how shocked the daughter was, and I can't imagine how shocked Herod was. But uh, the the I think it's in the Luke version. The the word there is she prompted, she pushed her. She's like, "This is this is the thing you want." Probably telling her, "You know, anything you want, you're going to have anyhow. It's in this kingdom." But I hate him. He consumes me. 
give me the head of John the Baptist. And that leads us to Herodias. Herodias, again, forced to marry her uncle. She went ambitious and tried to go somewhere else. She's got John the Baptist publicly calling her out, breaking the law. John the Baptist was messing up Herodias' plans. And this is how she uh, responds when that happens. There are many ways that you can respond when someone comes at you with an accusation of sin. There's the King David method, which is to ignore it until a good friend comes to you and sits you down and points it directly out to you, and then you confess it. There's the 21st century, which says, I'm sorry if you were offended, and then you consider that an apology. That's a good one. And then there's what I like to call the oldie but a goodie. It's called the how dare you. How dare you accuse, don't you judge me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my life. Who are you to think you are better than me? That's a relationship Herodias and John the Baptist had. That one has been used forever. Adam used it with God. Well, why have you sinned? You gave me the woman. Why are you judging me? You did it. I didn't do this. That was all on you. Ahab and Bathsheba used it against Elijah. Who are you to prophesy against us? And that's the one that Herodias and eventually Herod went after, was the who are you? And so Herodias, who is not going to lose her, her plan and her serving, uh, we, were, we were connecting with, uh, we had a, a Bible study going on in one of the local bars. We had people who'd never led worship before were leading worship. We had amazing things going on. It was incredible. And uh, about three, three or four years into that move of it, now we'd been there a number of years at that point, I could start to tell that I was out of ideas. I was out of ideas. I'd, I'd kind of gotten it as far as it could go. Um, and we were still desperately trying different things. And there's, there's a lot more to the story to that, to that. But eventually, we started running out of resources. We started running out of people. Um, started burning out the people that we had. And I finally had to admit that I am not the guy to lead this anymore. And so we left. Um, about a year later, the church closed. And I spent that entire uh, first year uh, really just not wanting to go to church or anything. We, 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 would, just, we would just bounce around uh, a little bit from here and there. And I looked back at that time, and it was very difficult for me to find anything worth remembering from that period. It just was a failure as far as I was concerned. I focused on what didn't happen. I focused on the plan that didn't come through. We poured ourselves into that ministry and those people. We made a commitment to God, and it didn't happen, and I was done. Years later, as I, as I kind of pushed away from it, I started looking. I could see how God had worked in the lives of kids who are still going to church to this day. I could see how someone who hadn't led worship before was suddenly leading worship in other churches and seeing lives transformed. I saw a person who sat on the sidelines for, for years focused on an alcoholic's ministry that was far away from God start to put his whole focus on seeing people come to know the Lord. And I can share testimony after testimony of people who are either serving or know Jesus now as a result of that ministry. But I can tell you that I did not see that in the rearview mirror right immediately. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that will prevail. Fast forward to today. I'll be honest with you. When we left, number one, I didn't want to go to any church. Carla beat me. You know, had to get me moving. And... Uh, she didn't really beat me, but uh, uh, I, I knew we had to. I had two kids, and I'm like, the kids have to go. So that's the, basically the reason why I get going. And some of you that are here will tell you, you go to a church after you've been a pastor, 
and they look at you funny. And you can feel it. They know you when you walk in, and then they have these conversations with you because they want to know why you're there. And there's, there's all kinds of dynamics that happen that aren't worth getting into. And so we're going from church to church trying to figure out what we're going to do. And there was one church, this church known as River Valley Community Church. And people would say, you should go there. I said, ah, oh, that's okay. I'm familiar with Andy, the Fox Valley Singles Ministry, you know. <laughs> Writes books. Does all these great things. The last person I want to sit in front of is that guy. And besides, the day I launched Suburban Community Church, this church launched. And this church was making it. Who wants to go to a church that did it when you couldn't? You guys are like, man, he's selfish. I know, I'm sorry. Might be my last Sunday preaching. <laughs> and so we, we came, and I was like, I'm, it'll be great. I told Carla, I said, we're not telling anybody that I ever pastored anywhere. And I said, Andy, him and I met once at a wedding, but he won't remember me. I unlocked the door for him. That was it, you know, you know. We're not fit to tie his shoes as he walked into the marriage. No, I'm kidding. And so we, we, we came into the service, and stinking Brian walks right up to me, and he says, Hi, Pastor Bob, how you doing? In front of Andy. And so we, we attend and everything, and Andy finally invites me out, and he's like, So what do you want? What are you looking to do? And I'm like, Man, just leave me alone. Let me sit in the chair Sunday morning. I'll bring my kids in. They'll go to your kids' program. I'm just going to sit there. And so he let me do that for a while. And then after a while, he said, you want to fill in once? And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll fill in once for you. I still remember it because I talked at like 90 miles an hour because I hadn't preached in a couple of years at that point. And uh, friends came to, to check it out. And then after a while, he asked me to do it again. Then he asked me to do it again. And then he'd say, is that okay with you? Is it okay if we just do that more and more? I said, sure. And then at some point, I said, um, I, d I don't want to get any pay for this. And then Sherilyn said, he's our man. God. <laughs> That's the guy. <laughs> Sunday in, Sunday out. Every time Andy's gone, <laughs> Bob doesn't take a check. Let's go. You know. <laughs> and what is crazy is that I can be here this morning today preaching on this subject because of an event in my life 10 years ago, leaving a church. And at that moment, that was the lowest moment in my entire life. But because God's word is true and because God's word is always faithful, I don't have to understand what's going on for me to continue to trust in God. Andy Stanley put it this way, you don't have to understand the plan to trust God's purpose. Now some of you this morning are praying for someone that's sick and they're not getting better. Some of us are looking at a first holiday without a cherished loved one. Others had a job that you were doing fine in, but for some reason, out of your control, you're unemployed. Some of you had a plan for how you're going to spend your later years, and those didn't work out. Some are here with a family in turmoil after you've done everything by the book as a parent. We don't interpret the goodness of God through our circumstances. We interpret our circumstances through the goodness of God. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. If you serve God long enough, you're going to hit a time that you just don't understand. And if you're like me, you begrudgingly tell God you'll accept his will. But then I always follow it up with, so what's the plan, God? And God may, be, may say, we're not going to talk about the plan. I want you to stay focused on my purpose. Herod's faith was in his own plan. 
Herodias' faith was in her own plan. John's faith was in God's purpose. John said, God, I know your ways are higher, your ways are wiser, and I've lived my entire life with a single purpose, to serve you and to glorify you and to point others to you. Remember that Jesus in the garden before, he's, his, before his betrayal, he prayed to God, if there's another way, God, don't let me suffer like this. But he quickly followed with, not my will, Lord, but your will or your purpose be done. In the moment of the senseless death of John, God seemed silent. Very similar to that moment on the cross when Jesus cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? Why, God, are you silent? Think about that. Everything you and I are doing today Everything about our faith is tied to a moment 2,000 years ago when God seemed silent, distant, and not engaged. And it was in that moment that God performed the greatest miracle of all. I don't need to know God's plans to know that I can live in God's purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how you transform our lives. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you don't make us stick to our plans that you don't make us live with the things that we think are great, but that you redirect, you call out. Father, help us to look back in life and instead of saying, why did that plan fall apart? Say, God, thank you that your purpose is being realized every day. Help us to remember that no matter what we see in the now, that your plan and your purpose are never in jeopardy. There are times in all of us that we're humbled. There are times in all of us that we're remembered that it's more you than it is us. Let those be times when you are calling us to something new, when you are giving us a renewed sense of belief and passion and vision, not because you've told us what's going to happen, but you've told us you've got a purpose in what happens. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.